Well, this morning we begin a brand new series that we're calling Summer in the Psalms. And I know sometimes our titles of our sermon series are kind of cute and kind of confusing, and so I want to make it really clear, in case you have any questions about what that means, we're going to spend this summer in the Psalms. (laughs) We're going to engage and explore God's hymnal, God's prayer book, created by and for God's people, in the power and under the guidance of God's spirit. This hymnal, this prayer book, right in the middle of the Bibles, has been utilized in both public worship and in private devotion for centuries. Fourth century church father Athanasius once put it this way. He said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, From the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it. So that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but you learn the way to remedy your ill. In other words, in other words, whatever life throws at us, the Psalms are there. This divinely inspired guardian and guide to prepare in us and to preserve us in the presence and power of God to prepare us for whatever life throws at us, to preserve us in God's presence and power. The Psalms guard and guide our thoughts and emotions and our actions, giving us the words to talk to God as we walk with God. Just this past Tuesday, I had a friend text me to check on me after my recent bout with COVID. And after assuring me of his prayers for me, he added this text. He said, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say... You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies. Save me from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Those of you who know the Psalms well will know. He just copied and pasted from Psalm 31. And sure, he could have prayed his own prayer. He could have texted his own words. But there was something both profound and powerful about praying a prayer that has been prayed before countless times by the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And in a special way, it invited me in, even through a screen and over a cellular network. In a special way, those words, because of their power, invited me in in a a special way. So we're going to begin where the Psalms begin in Psalm chapter 1, asking the question, what is the good life? It's a question we've all asked, haven't we, at one time or another, in one way or another. What's the good life? It's been debated by philosophers. It's It's been asserted in advertisements. If you don't believe me, watch the next commercial you see for laundry detergent. Watch the promises it makes for how your life can be so much better if you just buy Tide. (laughs) The good life is even enshrined, in a way, in the Declaration of Independence. What are we promised? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The good life. Steven Spielberg's 1998 film, Saving Private Ryan, is well-known for its graphic portrayal of during the Normandy landings of World War II. It's inspired by a true story and recounts Captain John Miller leading a detachment to find Private First Class James Francis Ryan from the 101st Airborne Division. 
the last of his four brothers to be alive during that fateful battle. And despite the countless grueling depictions of war, the movie begins in a cemetery in Normandy with Private Ryan, now an elderly man, kneeling at Captain Miller's grave and recalling aloud all that was done to save his life, remembering all those soldiers who died on the mission to keep him alive. And at the conclusion of the film, after all those grueling depictions of the Normandy landings, at the conclusion of the film, we return to that cemetery with Private Ryan saying before Captain Miller's headstone, he says these words, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. Captain Miller told him to earn it, to earn all that they had done for him. Every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge and I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that, at least in your eyes, I hope that I've earned what you have done for me. And then he quietly turns to his wife and he asks her, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. He's essentially asking the question that Captain Miller put in his mind all those years ago. Have I earned it? Have I led a good life? Am I a good person? You see, the pursuit of the good life is central to our life, and so it's where the Psalms begin. Would you hear God's word? Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Which which is rich imagery wherever you read it, but especially in the Bible, right? Remember how the scriptures start, in a garden, with a tree, watered well by a river. And remember how the scriptures conclude. The very last chapter, Revelation 22, the river of the water of life in the middle of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life, yielding 12 kinds of fruit. Fruit in its month, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. At the beginning of the scriptures, we see a tree. And at the conclusion of the scriptures, we see a tree. And so this tree in Psalm chapter 1 recalls that first tree and points forward to that last tree. And Psalm 1 says, right here, right now, that our lives can resemble those trees. You know, there's only four chapters in all of Scripture that don't have sin in them. They're Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22, and the rest of it is marred by the wicked ways that Psalm 1 speaks about. But Psalm 1 says, there is a way that your life can resemble those trees that you can live the good life, that you can be planted with roots down deep in the goodness of God's love, yielding fruit in season, leaf not withering, whatever you do prospers. But not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. On one hand, you've got like a a redwood tree and and then like like a, a little thorn bush rolling in the wind, a little tumbleweed. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your living word, Jesus Christ. The one who has come to reveal to us the good news of life in you. We give you thanks for the written word, your holy scriptures, through which your spirit conveys your truth to us. And now especially we give you thanks for the preached word. May we receive the words you have spoken in me, now speak them through me, and wherever those words fall short, may it fall away like chaff. But may the good news of your love for us, your truth spoken in us, may that remain like the redwood. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I love that the first word of the Psalms is blessed. The Psalms start with the goodness of God's favor and fortune. And at face value, it seems like Psalm 1 says that there's three things we must refrain from doing to earn God's blessing. Like Private Ryan said before that gravestone, I hope I've earned it. The psalmist says, don't walk in step with the wicked, don't stand in the way that sinners take, and don't sit in the company of mockers. Psalm 1 seems to say, if you don't do these three things, well, then you will earn God's blessing. And you can look back on your life, like Private Ryan, and you can know that you earned it. And I would like those three things to be true of me. I would like to be known as someone who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or sit in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And yet I know myself pretty well. I won't ask for a show of hands for those who feel similarly. (laughs) And so at the outset of the Psalms, the gateway to God's prayer book, I wonder to myself, have I done enough to earn God's blessing? Now, the word that's usually translated in the scriptures for bless is the word barak. Now, no matter how you voted, let me hear you say barak. Barak. (laughs) A couple of you got that. (laughs) It's Hebrew, barak. It means blessing. Hundreds of times throughout the scriptures, we see the word barak over and over, barak. Uh, When God blesses Adam and Eve in the garden, it's barak. When God blesses Father Abraham to have many sons and many sons to have Father Abraham, it's barak. We see Barak over and over in the scriptures. We can also pass on God's blessing to one another or bless God. For instance, um, when Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. Remember that one? Again, it's the word Barak. The songs that we sing already this morning, blessed be your name. That's like that same word, Barak. Or bless the Lord, O my soul. But that's not the word that's used here in Psalm chapter 1. Over and over, hundreds of times, we see the word barak used in the Hebrew scriptures to talk about blessing. But here, the psalmist uses a different word. It's esher. Let me hear you say esher. Esher is used only 45 times in the Hebrew Bible. Only 45 times, and it conveys a different meaning entirely. It's best translated as happy. Or how happy. Perhaps that seemed too flippant, too trite for the Bible translators, and so they went with the more churchy word, blessed. But esher means happy. How happy are those who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked? How happy when you don't stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers? 
How happy are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. How happy are they? They're like a tree planted alongside an abundant river. How happy are they? They are living the good life. I love that we got to celebrate your baptism this morning, Grace. Thank you for letting us be a part of that. How good it is to remember the waters of our own baptism and how they are the source of living water that flow through us, that we can be like that tree because of the waters of baptism through which we are claimed in God's family. Amen? You see, Psalm 1 is not about God's response to our attempts to earn his blessing, like Private Ryan. Psalm 1 is about our own response to the goodness of God's word, guarding and guiding our lives. How happy are we when we allow God's goodness to guard and to guide us? C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, joy is the serious business of heaven. We are happier when we keep from the counsel of the wicked. That is, when we reject bad ideas. We are happier when we stand away from sinners. That is, when we reject bad actions. We are happier when we sit somewhere else away from the mockers. That is, when we reject bad company. You see, there's this brilliant progression that happens here in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. From the ideas that we have to the actions that we take to the company that we keep. Dallas Willard once put it this way, there's no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. We live at the mercy of our ideas. Why? Well, because our ideas lead to our actions, and our actions lead to the people we surround ourselves with. And we are happiest when they are guarded and guided by God. That's the point of Romans chapter 12, where, where Paul says emphatically, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to that crowd. No, but instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, start with the ideas. Start with the places that you, you think. Start with the ideas that you hold. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing and perfect will. And then... If you reform those ideas, your whole life will be transformed. The influence of bad ideas happens all the way back in the garden at that other tree, doesn't it? Happens all the way back there when the tempter merely asks the question, merely posits the idea, did God really say? His name in the text is Diabolos. It means the splitter. The tempter who implants that bad idea splits he divides. He divides God's from, God from his words. He divides Adam from Eve. He divides God's people from God. With what? With an idea. Did God really say? I want to give an example from everyday life about how ideas can impact so dramatically. But please hear what I say and, and not what I don't say. I'm not interested in criticism or critique or being a culture warrior. I want to speak to those of us who have heard the good news of the gospel and who are seeking to follow it in our daily lives. And those of us who are curious about what it might mean to follow Jesus more closely. Just this week I was reading about the sociological effects of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. I'll say it again. Please hear what I say and not what I don't say. 
As a result, sex has been separated from marriage, divided. Birth control and abortion have separated marriage from procreation. No-fault divorce has separated marriage from a covenant into a contract. Our culture has separated fidelity and intimacy into just getting your physical needs met. It all comes from an idea, but it leads to actions and then radically transforms the world around us. All three are our ideas that lead to our actions that lead to the company we keep. All three influence our happiness. And in the decades since these ideas that spawned the sexual revolution of the 1960s, since those ideas began to influence our culture, our happiness in America has tanked. This is true. If you don't believe me, that's fine. Google it. <laughs> we are profoundly less happy than we were 60 years ago. And remember, hear what I say and not what I'm not saying. There are all kinds of strides that we have made forward in equality among the genders. I'm not questioning that. I'm not saying we're, we're going back away from that. But those ideas have had a tremendous impact, not only in our minds, not only our ideas, but in our actions and in our culture. Think about it. Divorce was thought to liberate us from patriarchy. But divorce most often benefits men. Those who cohabitate before marriage are much more likely to divorce. 25% of children in America now spend part of their childhood without a father in the home. That's one out of four. Sexual addiction is reaching epidemic levels. Pornography is now a multi-billion dollar industry which has been found to intentionally target children. One out of every four women will experience some form of sexual violence in America. One out of four. Are we really that much more liberated now than we once were? Are we really free, or has that freedom become a new kind of slavery? And it all started with an idea. In her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, an uh, author named Mary Eberstadt writes, Contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. Its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and the weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those that are already strongest and most predatory. Why do I give this example? Because we live at the mercy of our ideas. We live at the mercy of those ideas, of those thoughts that we have. That's why the scriptures tell us to take every thought captive to Christ. Because the, the authors of scripture know it starts here. Psalm 1 tells us our ideas lead to our actions and our actions lead to the company we keep. And all three influence our happiness. And joy, joy is the serious business of heaven. In other words, God deeply desires our happiness. God deeply desires that we would allow ourselves to be planted by streams of living water. Notice, notice the language there. We don't plant ourselves. There is such rich, reformed theology here in Psalm chapter 1, isn't there? We are planted as trees by the rivers of abundant water. We don't plant ourselves. We are planted. And God deeply desires that we would allow ourselves to be planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. 
whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So how are you allowing God's word to guard and to guide you into his happiness, into his joy? How are you allowing the scriptures to shape your thought life? Have you fallen into the idea that engaging God's word is duty instead of delight? It's another way that the tempter can divide duty and delight. I mean, tell me, what do you think is the opposite of pleasure? Go ahead and say it out loud. What's the opposite of pleasure? Pain. Pain, right? Let's think about that for a second. What if the opposite of pleasure isn't pain, but the opposite of pleasure is duty? What if we allowed ourselves to be drawn into the good word of God that guides and guards our hearts because of the pleasure that it brings us? Not as a sort of drudgery or duty, well, I guess I got to read my Bible today. Curtis said I got to read my Bible every day. What if instead we allowed ourselves to be drawn in because God deeply desires our happiness? God deeply desires that something would happen, right? That's the source of the word. Something has happened, and then it it results in in a kind of emotion. Not as a sort of duty, but pleasure. We know that scripture is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that about scripture. We know scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if we just talked about those verses, we might think about scripture as a duty. And Psalm 1 tells us there is also It's there to to delight in. It's there for our pleasure to bring happiness, to bring joy. To see the ways that we have been planted like that tree next to that river. There may be times in our lives when we engage scripture and we struggle to understand what it means. Has anybody ever had an experience like that? Okay, great, only four of us. That's good. (laughs) I want to invite us to be and to become people who pour over the scriptures who read large passages of scripture, who hold on to particular things that God may be speaking to us through the text, and sometimes we will see something that we don't quite understand. I want to invite us, as we seek to follow Jesus and allow the scriptures to guide and to guard, not to let that one thing we don't quite understand to derail all of the things we do understand. Especially those of us this morning who have some questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Some of us this morning may not consider ourselves Christians, and yet we may be curious. We may read the Bible. We may be looking for some answers. Act on the things that are clear. Act on the things that are clear. Put to use that one verse that makes sense, and God will clarify the things that are confusing. We all ask that question, like Private Ryan looking at that headstone, am I living a good life? Am I a good person? We all ask that question at one time or another. And we look not to Captain Miller, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus as the one who came after us, the one who went behind enemy lines, who gave his life on our rescue mission and died that we might live. And what's more, he did it while we were enemies of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Listen to these words. For the joy 
set before him. Let me say it again. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Did you hear that? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus went behind enemy lines, like Captain John Miller. That Jesus gave his life while we were enemies of God, for joy, for our happiness. Not that we would follow him out of duty, but that we would be just filled with delight. Jesus went behind enemy lines and saved us, but not just us, not just one soldier. He went behind enemy lines to save all those who want to live a good life, planted by those streams of abundant water. Unlike Private Ryan, we are never called to earn what he has done for us, not to earn his blessing or to pay him back. No, God's blessing is not for when we get it right. His blessing precedes our obedience but may we live in joyful response. May we trust that as we do, it will make us whole and happy and healthy. God, we give you thanks for your word. Would you forgive us for the times that we have seen it as a duty instead of a delight? We give you thanks for your word that it guards us and that it guides us. That it prepares us for whatever the world will throw at us, and it preserves us in the power of your spirit. May it, do, may it do that this day. For those of us who have questions of faith, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the tenacity? Would you give us the courage to act on the one thing that we know is clear and not to be distracted by the things that are confusing? May we trust in you that you will make them all clear in your time. Father God, would you give us delight. Delight in your word as it leads and guides. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.